John, chapter number 15, John was one of the apostles of Jesus Christ, one of his original disciples. And he wrote all the story of Jesus and explained to us who he was. And in John chapter 15, verses 12 through 13, we see the beginnings of this two-part sermon. Today, it's all about Jesus Christ, his love. Next week is all about Jesus Christ, his offer. So if the screen can go ahead and go to the John chapter 15 and verse number 12 passage, we'll jump right in. John chapter 15 and verse number 12 on the screen. There it is. Give the folks in the back a round of applause. They did it. They picked up on the cue. We're proud of them. John chapter 15, what does it say? This is my commandment. What is the commandment of Jesus? This is my commandment. What is his commandment? In his culture, in his background, in, in, in his religious context, they had 10 big commandments. They had 10. Jesus said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command you, let us pray. Father, over the next two weeks as we study this passage, I pray that you would help us to understand your love and who you are and how we can follow this command. God, I pray that you would do a miracle today. You have filled this place with your holy people. I pray that you would fill it with your Holy Spirit. You would fill my mouth with your holy words. You would allow me to express and say exactly what you have me to say for your people in this moment. Oh, God of heaven, I pray that today would be a memorable experience, not just in this life, but for eternity because of what will happen today. may determine the eternal existence, the eternal life or damnation of someone even in this room. Oh God, help us, help us, help us to see you and to study your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Can you trust Jesus. I believe that you can trust him because he knows you and, and he loves you. Some of you don't know me real well. I'll introduce myself. My name is Josh. Hi, Josh. Hi, Josh. <laughs> yeah. You're quick. Very good. I'll try that again. My name is Josh. Oh, hi. It's nice to meet you. Glad you're here today. Um, this passage is interesting, or this idea is interesting. You can trust him because he knows you and he loves you. Uh, are you like me? Do you have people in your life that um, love you but don't know you that well? Right? You, you work with people that are like, man, I just love that guy. And you're like, if you knew me. As a pastor in this community... 
Um, it's funny because as the church has grown, um, you get to know me before I get to know you. And I'm a pastor who likes to get to know every single person. That's why I schedule my week to sit one-on-one with every single person that visits the church and talk over a cup of coffee. I want to get to know you. I like getting there, but you know me before I know you. So oftentimes I'll be in the community and maybe at Albertsons and people walk up, they're like, faster. And I'm like, hey, and they're like, how are you? And I'm like, good, good to see you. <laughs> Champ, you know, I don't, I don't know who they are, you know. Fella, guy, what's up, bro, yo, you know. I don't know them. They don't, they, and and, and I'll hear this all the time. I'll be like, Pastor, I just got to tell you, we've been coming to the church and we just love you. Which really, like, that's so kind. It's so, it's, I, it's undeserved. And I actually think, I know this is going to, maybe there's a psychologist in the room who could help me, but I often think when they say this to me, they'll say, oh, we just love you. I often think, you don't really know me yet. They, they love me, but they don't, know me yet. I have people in my life that love me but don't know me, but I also have people that know me but don't love me, which is always surprising because I, I, I think like the more you get to know me, the more you would love me, but I know people that know me really well, like really well, and they got big problems with me. Do you have people like that as well? Here's the amazing thing about God. God knows you, and he loves you. He likes you. He loves you. So this is why you can trust him. Now, when we talk about Jesus, we have to ask, what about the love of Jesus do we really need to know? And that's the next question I want to wrestle with. What do we know about Jesus himself and his love? I'm going to, like I said, in two weeks, talk about the love of Jesus and the offer of Jesus. His love today and next week, his offer. Let's begin with that concept of understanding the love of Jesus. And I have three words and that's it. Only three words for this sermon that you'll need to remember and follow along with. Here are the three words. Relatable, unconditional, sacrificial. Three words, that's the whole sermon. Relatable, God's love is relatable. Unconditional, God's love is unconditional. Sacrificial, God's love is sacrificial. What do you mean it's relatable, Pastor Josh? What do you mean uh, Jesus' love is relatable? Well, see, when it comes to the love of God, sometimes we have a very difficult time relating to God. Why? Because we are mere men and women. We are coming from the dirt, we live our lives, we go back to the dirt. Jesus is the deity, the God of heaven. And for a man or woman to fully understand God, how does that work? In fact, in fact, our perception of God as human beings is very, 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 very limited, very false. I, I was interested in this this week. I thought, okay, if I was going to try to figure out how mankind thought of God, how could I do so? So I Googled God. And a lot of stuff came up. <laughs> and then I thought, of my, thought to myself, with all that's happening, artificial intelligence and AI design. AI. How many of you are familiar with AI, right? It's where, you know, I get most of my sermons. I just have them, right? <laughs> They've been good lately, though, right? You know what I mean? So it's, it's a joke. Relax. My word. 
I, I thought, okay, why don't I Google AI design of God? And, and why? Because this is the amalgamation of what AI thinks of when it thinks of God. Why? Why? Well, because artificial intelligence is simply a collection of the data that human beings have fed it. So AI, when it thinks of God, it fits out that image or this image. But when the Bible talks about God, this is the image we get. God is presented to mankind as so far above them they can never touch him. So lofty and high and lifted up beyond our reach and, and we beyond his. And God himself, in the form of Jesus Christ, comes to earth and presents himself as a wandering carpenter rabbi who spends time among fishermen, prostitutes, and political outcasts. Why did Jesus become man? If Jesus is the eternal son of God, deity in eternity, why did he become a man? And the answer is found in Hebrews. We're going to come back to John chapter 15 in a moment. The answer is found in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 15. The book of Hebrews is written to a Hebrew group of individuals, followers of God and followers of the Hebrew Old Testament. And it's written to them to explain why Jesus is better than all of the other gods the world has to offer and why he's better than any other high priest the world has to offer. And it begins in verse 15. It says, for we do not have a high priest, Jesus, high priest, Jesus. I'm going to say high priest. You say Jesus. High priest. Okay, Jesus is our high priest. When I Googled AI image of high priest, that's where I got that picture of the guy with the horns. This is how men views a high priest, a very big and lofty, important religious figure that they are so much higher and better with special clothing than us. And God says in Hebrews chapter four, we do not have a high priest. We do not have a God. We do not have a high priest in Jesus Christ who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus Christ became a man so that he could understand you. God became a man so that he could sympathize with your experience. Like a king coming down from his castle to live among the common people, even more so, God became a man in order to understand your experience as a human, which means that's why Jesus got tired. How many, of, how many of you get tired? How many of you get tired? Raise your hand. How many of you are tired right now? I can tell. Some of you have already, you know, that's, I always tell people if you fall asleep in church, that's okay with me. That's fine. You're getting rest. I'm okay with it. You have to answer to God. Good job. I'm just kidding. Some of us get tired, some of us get hungry. You ever get hungry? Why, because you're human. You know Jesus got hungry? How many of you ever get so hungry that you get hangry? Anybody ever get hangry? I'm a little hangry right now, actually. How many ever get irritated? Jesus got irritated? You say, how do you know? Because Peter was his disciple. 
Now think about this. God, God becomes a man. The once limitless God put limitations on himself. The God who at one point could teleport from one side of the universe to the other becomes a man and now it takes him days to walk from one village to another. How many times do you think Jesus was tempted as he walked from one village to another to think, I'm just gonna... I'm a one at you? And just like, mm, and I'm there, right? It's an old reference. If you laugh, you're old, all right. But he didn't. He didn't. In fact, the Bible tells us over and over that Jesus was tempted to perform miracles just for his own well-being, but he never did. He only performed miracles for others. He limited himself. You think about this. You think about Jesus' experience as a man. The same person who at one point crafted Jupiter and hung it in space is the same man who crafted out of wood a door and hung it on a hinge for a customer who wanted it a day ahead of time and can't pay for two more weeks. That's what God became. You think God can't understand your experience? He literally lived as one of us so that he can understand your experience. He gets you. He gets us. He understands what it means to be human. Look at what it goes on to say. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted just like we are. Now that's an amazing thing to think. Jesus was, how many of you ever get tempted to do the wrong thing? You ever get tempted? To do, like four of you. You're like, I'm in church, pastor. I've never been tempted in my life. I'm aghast that you would suggest such a thing. I know, you're so good. You came to church today. Think about not you today. Think about you yesterday, okay? Are we ready? All right? Yeah, okay, there we go. How many of you ever get tempted to do the wrong thing? Would you raise your hand? So did Jesus. Now, I know some of you are way more religious than us and the Bible, and you're thinking to yourself, Jesus was never tempted. Jesus was never tempted. How dare you? Blasphemy, blasphemy. We know you're very religious and you're so much better. All right. According to the Bible, Jesus was tempted in every way that any man has ever been tempted. So he gets it. He knows the pull, he knows the struggle. He knows what it is to want to sin. The difference is, he was tempted in all points just like we are, yet without sin. Never once did he ever give in to temptation. Now that's crazy power. That's amazing strength. I, I gotta tell you, there are a few times in my life I've been tempted to sin, a few times, and I didn't. And in those few times, I'm like, hey. And the moment I'm like, hey, pride, and then I'm out. (laughs) You know what I mean? Jesus spent 33 years never sinning, but always being tempted. This is a God who knows us. This is the opposite of the Greco-Roman gods of the time. That's why it was such a powerful statement because the Greco-Roman gods of the time did what they want when they wanted and answered to no one about anything. And they were high and lifted up. And Jesus says, I am humble. 
and meek, lowly. And I love you, and I like you, and I understand you. He, understood what, he understands what it is to experience the death of a friend. He understands what it is to cry. Isaiah said he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He understands what it was to be mistreated due to his social class. He understands what it is to experience the pain of betrayal, a good friend, not one, but 12, 12, 12 best friends turning their back on him and running in his moment. And then it says, so let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Because Jesus loves you in a relatable way, he says you can come boldly to his throne and beg for grace and mercy to help in time of need. Hebrews chapter four says because his love is relatable, you should feel comfortable to go to him and be like, I need you. I need mercy. Now, some of you are thinking, okay, I like the idea of going to Jesus for things, but going to him for mercy, why would I need mercy? Oh, that's a good question. The answer is because of sin. You say, but pastor, I'm not a sinner. Okay. I have some bad news. The Bible says that sin is anything we think, do, or say that displeases God. Have you ever done anything or thought anything or hurt anyone or did anything that might go against one of the laws of God? Anybody? Anybody? I know I have. So sometimes when you go to church, you have to do confession. We're not set up that way. We don't have enough booths. So instead, <laughs> instead of you doing confession to me, I'll do a confession to you. How, how, how about that? Good deal? How about I tell you bad stuff about me? How many of you are like, now I'm paying attention, right? Give you a few bad things about me. I am not a perfect man. I, I, I make mistakes all of the time. I don't have to think too far back. I, I just joined a new gym. Well, a new gym class, a class at a gym. And um, I, li I, like a, I like the classes because they're competitive, right? And you have to go against other people, especially if there are numbers on the board and all that kind of stuff. You know what I'm talking about? And so I, I you know, holidays came and I, I was, you know, I was a little, uh, I was a little, softer than I normal, normally am, you know what I mean? And I'm like, gotta get it, gotta get it back into shape, right? So I went to this new gym, joined this class, and, and I did not think it was going to be that difficult. Because I'm already an impeccable image of manhood, you know what I mean? So I went into this class, and more than half of them were moms in their 40s. And, I, uh, and I'm like, all right, no big deal. This is going to be a piece of cake. I'll try this for a month or two, and we'll see how it goes. And it looks like a lot of fun. And the way the, the way the class works is you have to run on a treadmill, but there's somebody yelling at you the whole time. And, and you have to go faster, and then slower, and then higher, and then lower. And then you have to jump from the treadmill to a, um, to a, a, a rower. And then you row for a while, and then you have to go over to a weight bench, and you have to do these weights, and it's back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, all these things. I'm like, oh yeah, that looks like fun. It's an hour, I can get in, get done, get out, burn a thousand calories and get back to my donuts. And so this was, <laughs> it was the plan, you know? 
And so I went in, and the first class that I signed up for was on a Monday after a Sunday. Monday after a Sunday. Now, on Sunday, I, I'm busy. I do stuff. I work on Sunday. And... Um, doing this. And I spent the entire day Sunday working all day, morning, afternoon, evening, went home, had dinner, fell right into bed, fell asleep. Did not, okay, a little TMI here, too much information. I did not shower that night, just went right to bed. No big deal. Got up the next morning, and I spent some time with the Lord, grabbed some coffee, sitting out on my porch, writing next week's sermon. Time was coming, noon, I got to go to the gym for this new class. And I thought to myself, should I shower before going to the gym. No need. I'm about to get sweaty anyway. Not a big deal. It's not going to be that hard of a workout anyway. Within 10 minutes, I am breathing so heavily I'm about to pass out. I am perspiring so much, I swear to you, it was wet from neck to navel. And as I'm running on the treadmill, Every time I turned my head this way or this way, I could sense the stench reeking with a three-foot radius. I am not the only one who could sense it. I literally had people in our own neighborhood go from one treadmill to the next during that 60-minute workout because I smelled... it was, it was obvious. It was pungent. If you were there, I apologize. <laughs> Say, Pastor, what a weird thing to share. Why are you sharing this? Because I want to be honest with you about who I am. See, some of you look up to a high priest or a pastor or a rabbi or an imam, and you think to yourself, they are greater than all the others. And in reality, we sweat just like you sometimes make really dumb decisions. But what's more fascinating to me is that Jesus sweat just like you. That he lived a human existence just like you. He did so so that you could be relatable to him and he could be relatable to you so that you, he would understand your experience and you would feel like you could approach him at any time. Friend, don't you understand what God did for you? God became a man so that he could save you. Number one, his love. His love is relatable, but number two, his love is unconditional. Now, now why is this part so important to grasp? Uh, Why is it so necessary for me to understand that his love is not only relatable, his love is unconditional? Look at what it says in John chapter 15 and verse number 12. Look at what it says. This is my command that you love one another as I have loved you. What does that mean? A moment ago I mentioned um, I love donuts. Anybody in love with sugary pastries as I am? Anybody? How many of you have been to Mazo's Donuts on Blue Diamond Road? God bless Mazo's. If you haven't been there and had their maple bar, maple bar, have you ever studied the book of Exodus? It talks about manna. I think it was the maple bar from Mazo's. Could be wrong. Probably was. Probably was. I love it. The problem is I not only love donuts, I absolutely love my daughter. 
You know one of the biggest problems when it comes to the word love in understanding God's love is this concept. It's nearly impossible for us to understand how God loves us because we only use one word for the word love. I love donuts, but I also love my daughter. Is it the same type of love? No, it's not the same type of love. Do you know why? Because donuts never disappoint me. No, I'm just kidding. That's a joke. It's a joke. I'm just, it's a joke. I'm just kidding. No, I don't love my daughter the same as I love donuts. My love for my daughter is so superior than my love for donuts. Then why do I use the same word? Because in English, we only have the one word. In the Bible, there are four different words, or in the Greek language, which the Bible was written in, the New Testament was written in, there's four words for the word love, and they help us understand how God loves us. When it says in this passage, John chapter 15, go back, John chapter 15 and verse 12, this is my command that you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus uses this specific word to describe how Jesus loves you. Jesus doesn't just love you like you love donuts. Jesus loves you in a very special way. Here are the four words that describe love in the ancient Greek language. Number one is storge. What does storge mean? It's a, it's a familial love. It means the way a man loves his wife or the way a father loves his children. It's a family type of a love. The way you feel about your cousin that you haven't seen since childhood. You love them. It's a family love. Storge. Say it with me. Storge. There's another kind of love, and that's phileo love. Phileo love, it means brotherly love. I'm going to say brotherly love. You say phileo, brotherly love, phileo. It's like the phrase uh, Philadelphia. Have you ever been to Philadelphia? It's the city of brotherly city of brotherly love. It's, it's the way friends interact. It's like when one guy says to another, I love you, man. And he's like, I love you, man. What does he mean by that? Is he talking romantic? No, he's saying we're buds, we're pals. Storge, phileo. The third kind is eros, where we get the word erotic. It's romantic or sexual love. It means that I love you in a way that I want to sexually be with you. It's a different type of love. In the English language, we use the same word for all of these. In the Greek language, they use four. There is a fourth kind of love, and that is a love that we call agape. I want you to say it with me, agape. Agape love means an unconditional, sacrificial love. It's the type of love that God has for you. When I said he knows you and he likes you, and he loves you, and you think to yourself, if he knows everything about me, how does he love me? You're beginning to understand agape love. It is non-transactional. All of these other loves are transactional. If you are a good father to me, I will love you. If you are a good child to me, I will love you. If you're a good friend to me, we'll stay friends. If you are a good lover to me, we'll stay lovers. All of these other loves have an aspect of transactional relationship. Agape love says, I love you. Even if you never do anything for me, I love you. That's the way God loves you. You say, I don't think I've ever seen that kind of love. Maybe you've never experienced it, but it is in the world. Do we ever see agape love in this world? Yes, yes, yes we do. For example, how many of you still have children in your home that are under the age of five? Under the age of five. 
Raise your hand. Some of you have them, you're just too tired to raise your hands. You're like, oh, dude. <sighs> okay, under the age of five, they're, they're exhausting. How many of you ever had a child in the home and that child is sick? I remember when my son was probably, I don't know, probably about nine to 12 months old and he was sick, like with some kind of a flu, you know, throwing up, all this kind of stuff. And I was, I was so sad for him, I was concerned for him, I was worried for him, and I'm holding him, and I'm, I'm patting him, and he's hot, and he's feverish, and he's crying, and he's sad, and he finally got, he finally got rested just a little bit. And I was so worried for him, I, I needed to pray for him. And I had this image in my mind to hold my son up like this, like, you know, like, like Simba, <laughs> and hold him up to the Lord and pray for him. Unfortunately, I did not hold him up away from me, I held him up toward me. And with earnestness, I prayed. With my eyes open and my mouth agape, I prayed to God, God, heal my little boy. And the moment I prayed, God answered my prayer into my face. This is what it is to have a little child. You want to see agape love? Here's agape love. When a mother is up at 3 a.m. with a sick child and she's wiping the brow, that child is doing nothing for the mother. That mother just loves the child. This is agape love. Unconditional, sacrificial, non-transactional. It's the same kind of a love. You'll see it in our society occasionally. You'll see it when a, a, an old man in his 80s is walking into an elderly care facility where his wife now lives. And as he walks in slowly, he turns the corner down a hall and opens the door to a woman who doesn't even remember his name. And he'll introduce himself again, just like he did the day before and the day before that. And he'll sit down and he'll put his walker aside and talk to her. He's receiving nothing out of this relationship. It's non-transactional. He just loves her. You see it in our society when a police officer or a soldier chooses to stand on the line. And in moments of incredible pressure, he takes a bullet for someone else. He gives his life for a brother in arms. Agape love. This is the kind of love God has for you. He doesn't love you so that you will do something for him. He loves you because he loves you. We see about the love of Jesus this. Number one, we see his love is relatable. His love is unconditional. And then number three, his love is sacrificial. Sacrificial. What do you mean sacrificial, Pastor Josh? John chapter 15, verses 12, again it says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Again, Jesus says, I want you to agape each other the way I agape you. Here's the command. Love each other the way I've loved you. And then he goes on, Greater love has nobody than this. Here's the demonstration of my love. 
I'm going to lay down my life for my friends. Now this part of the story can be very, very confusing because Christians do not do a good job at explaining why Jesus died on the cross for sins. If I were to ask the question, did Jesus die? Most Americans say yes. I'm talking about America. Why did Jesus die? Most Americans, if you just asked them, they would say, Jesus died for our sins. Jesus died for our sins. What does that mean? What does that mean? Why did Jesus have to die for your sins? The answer to that question is because your sins though you may see them as very small in comparison to others, your sins are racking up slowly. Especially the older you get, your list is getting bigger. And I know you're trying to do some good works, right? Do a couple of good things to knock off some of the bad things as if that's the way it worked. And your list just keeps growing. And the problem is you're forgetting some of the things you were even put on the list in the first place. And one day, you as a human are going to stand in front of God with your list of sins. And you got to pay the bill. If you've been part of our church for any, a long time, you'll have to excuse me and I apologize. I'm going to tell a story I've already told here. I rarely do this, but I feel it was necessary today. If you're new here, it's a new story to you. My wife said to me, let's go to a new restaurant. I said, which one? She said, Firefly. Anybody here ever been to Firefly before? I thought to myself, I don't eat bugs. And she said, it's not bugs, it's a tapas restaurant. I don't know what tapas are. So I said, let's go. I've never been to a tapas restaurant. I like tapas restaurants, I guess, let's go. By the way, the last time I told this story, somebody said, I thought you said topless restaurant. (laughs) Never been to one of those either. Won't go prefer clothes, I went to a tapas, T-A-P-A-S, tapas, Spanish restaurant, which tapas mean little plates. How many of you have ever been to a tapas restaurant, little, little Spanish plates? How many of you? Okay. If you haven't, it's fantastic. I went there. I, I highly recommend it, but I did not know exactly what the experience was going to be. First thing they did, they sat me down. I was with my three teenagers at the time, my wife, myself, my three teenagers. They gave us the menu. The first thing I noticed about the menu is there were about a hundred items, but they were all like $4 each. And I thought to myself, sweet value menu, where are we? Four bucks. And I thought to myself, this is going to be fantastic. I'm going to get out of here for like 25, 30 bucks. We'll eat some meals. We'll get some tapas. We'll go home, watch Netflix. Let's do this thing. We're all sitting outside. It's a beautiful night. The sun is going down. The lights are above us. We grab the menus and we order a few tapas. And as we did, they brought them out. Here's what I didn't know. They were all in little plates. They brought out some bacon-wrapped dates. So good. Really good. I ate the bacon-wrapped date, and I'm like, oh. But they were so small. And I looked, I'm like, bring four more of those. Thank you so much. And then a couple salads, bring three of those more. And then we started making this. And we just had such a good time in the beautiful environment. And I just started ordering, and my kids were ordering, and I was ordering, everybody was ordering. And we just started racking up the list. 
talking about college. Jonathan was home visiting, talking about high school, talking about next steps, talking about church, all the things. And before I knew it, an hour and a half had gone by, and I said, can you bring me the bill? And they brought the bill. And I opened it up. It was over $250. And I remember thinking, somebody, you brought the wrong person's bill. Because I did not order a filet. Okay. You understand? Like, it was a bunch of, like, apple sides. You know what I mean? Like, what's, what is happening? And I about raised my hand to say something, call the waitress over, and my daughter put my hand and said, don't embarrass us. I said, okay. I looked and I began to tally it up. And sure enough, I remember ordering this. I remember ordering this. I said, did you order this? Did you order? And there were a bunch of things even on the, on the receipt. I don't even remember ordering, but I ate it. <laughs> so I paid the bill. The problem with some of you is this, and I'm going to be very blunt here. Excuse me. This is what preachers do. Some of you are going to show up at the judgment of God one day. And the bill you've been creating is far bigger than you realize. Because what you've been thinking is it's a $3 this, it's a $5 this, it's a small sin, small sin, small sin, occasional big sin, and it's racking up. And you kind of got this idea that God loves you so things are cool. He does love you, but there's a bill that has to be paid. You say, so then what what am I going to do? The answer is, you're going to stand before God and pay the bill by dying and going to hell forever. And this thought so terrified the Son of God that millions of years ago in eternity past, he saw you And he saw your life since you were a child, even to now, and the future of your life. And he saw the day you were going to stand before God with your giant bill, and you're thinking to yourself, what's going to happen to me? He saw you, and he liked you, and he loved you, and he thought, somebody's got to pay that bill. Or you're going to have to pay for it. And so Jesus Christ said, I have a plan. I will become a man. I will live a perfect life so that I don't have to pay my own bill. And I will die upon the cross and shed my blood to pay for their sin bill. That's what Jesus Christ did for you. That's what he did for you. say, well, what do I need to do? Let him pay the bill. See, that's where the key of the message ends and what leads into next week's sermon about his offer. See, his love is beautiful, but his offer is, is shocking. It didn't happen. I kind of wish it did but I'm going to give you a pretend part of the story. Suppose I'm at Firefly and they bring me the bill and at the bottom of the bill it said zero. And I said, zero? Why is it zero? And they said, well, there's a man and they pointed over to the bar and there's a a man sitting at the bar. He's one of our deacons. Where deacons normally go and sit? At the bar, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) And he waves at me and I wave at him. 
He said, don't worry, pastor, I got your bill. And I'm touched. And I'm inspired. And I, I th- th- thank you. And the man leaves and we get up to go. And as I get up to go, I walk up to the waitress and I say, I don't want that man paying my bill. I'll pay my own bills. What a fool I'd be. What, a, what an utter fool I would be to look down my nose at that sacrificial, unconditional act of love. Do you know why people are damned? It's because God of heaven is offering you an unconditional, sacrificial pain of your sin debt. He already died. But it's your choice if you receive the payment or reject Jesus Christ. Oh, friend. I want to encourage you today. Receive the love of Jesus. He came to save your soul. I changed my schedule this week and next so that I could spend time talking one-on-one to anybody who wants to talk with me. Uh, Pastor Caleb did the same, actually. Because there are some people in the church today who are not yet believers in Jesus. Like, God's really working on your heart. You need to talk to somebody. And so this is what's going to happen after the service. After the last song, people are going to leave. We're going to have one more song, then people are going to leave. When they leave, I think some of you need to come talk to me. You know who you are. Some of you need to come talk to Pastor Caleb. He'll stand here. I'm going to stand here. And we're going to wait for you to come talk to us. And what we're going to do is we're going to schedule a coffee time. We're going to go get some coffee. We're going to answer any questions you have about what it means to believe in Jesus Christ, to receive the love of Jesus. And you'll be able to walk away from that coffee appointment truly saved. Let's pray.